Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Um, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 20, and uh, we're going to just continue in this beautiful study of David's life. <coughs> so 1 Samuel 20. We all live in a world of uh, brokenness, a world of danger, disappointment, and confusion. At times, the world that we live in is very difficult to understand. Uh, we all know personally in our lives the struggle with sin. We know what it is to be sinned against. And the text that we study today and over the, last, uh, over the next few months um, will tell you that David lived in a similar world where struggle, pain, and questions are present. And often uh, lacking clarity about what is God doing in the circumstance that we find ourselves in. We struggle to understand how it all fits together. The text before us this morning, the text before us last week, uh, are texts that are brutally honest. Uh, one of the things you will find as you read through the story of the people of God and God working out his plan amongst his people is that the story is never sanitized. It's never kind of picked clean. It's it's not, as many liberals would say, presented to present Israel in a certain light. Because if you were writing the story, trying to present Israel in a positive light, you wouldn't include the things that are included in these stories. But it is a true account, and it is an account that is meant to instruct us and to teach us. And it, it, its aim is to show us in the struggle how to survive for the glory of God in it. How God aims to work and bring about and complete his purposes and circumstances that we would never choose. It's in that sense that these accounts serve as a GPS for us. It's a personal guidance system that God has given to believers. We read through the story and we find that the text points us in certain or specific directions. It shows us what not to do and it shows us how we should respond in similar circumstances. These are Texts that are written, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as examples for us who believe upon whom the end of the ages has come, to show us how to navigate life, life successfully in light of, not in spite of, the struggles that are there. God is with us, and this text aims to show us how God works in the lives of his people, ultimately for his glory, pointing the way to a joyful life that honors God. The way we're going to study this text today is to spend some time looking at the setting. That's the basic story of the text. Uh, and then the second thing I want to do is look at the three main characters. So we're going to kind of run through the account. And then in conclusion, we'll look at, at the life of Saul, Jonathan, and David, kind of reflecting on how the truths that are revealed about them or how the lessons that we learn from them apply into our own personal experience. So as we ended last week, we saw that David was a fugitive. He was accused wrongfully and falsely of seeking to kill Michael, the daughter of the king Saul. And David flees to Samuel. There God disables uh, King Saul and his soldiers supernaturally, and David finds deliverance. What does David do? You would think that David would get as far away from uh, Saul's hometown as possible, but that's not what David does. What David does is he leaves Nyath where the prophet Samuel is, who is a close confidant and friend of his, and he heads back to Gibeah, the city of Saul. It's a fascinating turn of events. He flees from Nioth, verse 1, at Ramah, and he goes to Jonathan, the king's son, and he asks, what have I done? And the question is, what, why is, is Saul, your dad, so bent on my destruction? 
How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. And what you find is David's pretty sure that after three spears have been hurled his way, that he kind of understands how Saul feels about him. All right, he has a keen sense for the obvious, okay? Jonathan is this bewildered son who loves David passionately. They are knit together. But he loves his father too. And he sees a man who is emotionally being destroyed by resentment, bitterness, and, and, and lust for power. He, he's watching his dad breaking apart, not thoroughly convinced that it's irredeemable yet. But at some level certainly concerned, but not concerned <clears throat> that it's going to bring the death of David. And so he says it's not so. But David took an oath and said... Your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. He knows that we have a deeply committed relationship as friends before God. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must know this, must not know this, that is Saul's intent to kill, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. So David has come to a conclusion, Saul wants me dead, and Here's the simple insight. David is absolutely correct. There's nothing Saul wants more at this time in his life than the head of David on a platter. That's what he wants. So that's the context in which we find this man of God seeking to live in a way that honors God. Jonathan replies to David in verse 4, and he says, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. You find this kind of carte blanche. Jonathan's like, David... I trust you, I see God's hand at work in your life, and I am with you. Now, I want you to think back with me to the beginning of chapter 18. David has had the encounter with Goliath and and has successfully protected the glory of God by eliminating the enemy of Israel. He comes before Saul, and, and you remember the whole discussion that Doug presented to us. Whose son are you? I'm the son of Jesse, a no name. But he has risen to this incredibly powerful situation in his life where he is the the hero or the savior of the nation of Israel. And if you look back at the beginning of chapter 18, you'll find after David finished talking with Saul. So David has this conversation with Saul. It's the aftermath. It's the exact day in which everything happens in regards to Goliath. And it says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as he loved himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This very powerful knitting together of these two now warriors, one the son of the king and the heir apparent, and the other the one that was anointed to be king by Samuel. And you find there's something, to me, incredibly powerful about Jonathan's deference to the will and plan of God. He knows what David has been anointed for. 
and he is yielding to that. And so they become one in spirit. The word literally means they were tied together in soul. They were soulmates. They had a similar perspective on life and on the purposes of God in their life and their view of God and his glory over all things, even when it meant self-sacrifice. They were knit together in a very powerful and beautiful way. Jonathan then, in this setting of, of being so deeply moved by what he has seen of David, he makes a covenant with David, and he seals it with tokens. And the tokens are the princely garb, the, the rights to the heir apparent. These are treasured tokens. And David holds in his hands the symbols of becoming the future king of Israel. Jonathan disrobes himself and gives this prophetically, status to David, knowing that the hand of God has been manifested in and on David's life. So he gives coveted tokens of power. And in that, you learn something very powerful about Jonathan that we'll come back to in just a little bit. In the story that is before us, David is perplexed. And so he comes to Jonathan, as we described, and he's like, I don't know what's going on. I am deeply troubled by this. Jonathan surrenders and says, David, whatever you need me to do for you, I'll do it. Meaning, I'll sacrifice anything to be sure that God's purposes are fulfilled in your life. That is how deep and selfless this connection is. That's rare in life. It's rare that you and I want the advancement and benefit and growth and blessing of others more than we wanted ourselves. And so Jonathan stands out as a unique friend who can be delighted with the progress of, of someone else, even though he knows that it is costly for his own future. It's a fascinating story, and one that I hope we can look at and learn from. Well, David presents his problem. He's like, Jonathan, what is going on with your dad? Why is he so hell-bent on my destruction? Why so tenacious about that? And David can literally say, what have I done? He can plead his innocence in verses 8 and 9 of the text. You find this <clears throat> fascinating uh, statement on the part of David. Notice what it says. He says, as for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with the Lord. Meaning David and Jonathan have sworn themselves to one another. And David says, if I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Jonathan, if you're convinced, what deference? If you're convinced that there's something broken about my approach to this situation, something wrong, something uh, of, a, of a lust for power that is overwhelming me but blinding me and I don't see it, and if you think that I have ill intentions for your father, then I'm asking you to do this. Take my life. An amazing picture of deference. Well, Jonathan will have nothing to do with it. Verse 9, he says, never... If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? So now what, what is Jonathan? Jonathan's saying, David, if my father intends to kill you, I am outside of the loop of that discussion. I am not privy to that information. So whatever's been happening in all that we saw last week in this nine attempts on David's life, which has David convinced they want me dead, and then the divine intervention of God protecting David's life so that he's able now to be talking with Jonathan. It seems that Jonathan was probably kept out of the loop or out on other missions and is unaware of the tension that has built between the king and David, the king being his father. And so they talk about coming up with a way to 
sound out to discern what is going on in Saul's heart. And so the plan they come up with emerges in verses 13 through 17. Okay, verse 11. Jonathan invites David to come out into the field and to come up with a way, a a plot, if you will. I don't want to make it sound too negative. It's it's, it's a plan to kind of find out what does Saul, what is Saul's real intent? Is it safe for David to come back? And what they do is they have a discussion about, a, I'm going to call it a Thanksgiving meal. It's actually a ceremonial meal that the Jews celebrated. And it would be typical for the son of the king or the son-in-law of the king, which David is through his marriage to Michael, it would be customary for David to be at that meal. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when, I, when I think through the story, I thought, okay, Saul's tried to kill him three times. He went to Niath to execute David, was disabled, and has come back home. Would you trust Saul if you were David? He's thrown the spirit at you three times, and you've had the privilege of evading it. And what does David do? He goes right back to the town to say, what is going on? to find a path to reconciliation, to find a resolution to the tension that has uh, kind of raised up in his life. And so they concoct a plan. And the purpose of the plan is so that Jonathan can get an understanding of Saul's heart and communicate that to David. That's why David's saying, who's going to tell me the outcome of this plan? And so as the text unfolds, uh, Jonathan talks about this uh, deep love that he has for David in verse 14. Notice what it says in verse 14. He says, show me unfailing kindness. So they, they, they come to this kind of commitment. And what Jonathan wants to know, how deeply is David committed to him? And, and, and so the text says, Jonathan says, David, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. And if you read through the Psalms, you're going to find a phrase, it's unfailing love. Okay, the Hebrew word for that is hesed. Okay, it's a word that speaks about a covenant loyalty, a binding obligation in spite of what it cost. And so Jonathan is inviting David into a hesed relationship, a covenant bound and secured in spite of what it may cost the individuals to maintain the seriousness of that covenant relationship. In verse 15, and it's, it's fascinating as you read this, Jonathan says, show me unfailing kindness, the Lord's kindness, as long as I live so that I may not be killed. Verse 15. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, even when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies from the face of the earth. Now what's going on there? All right, what's happening is Jonathan and David are entering into a deep covenant. Jonathan knows protocol in his time. Jonathan knows that when a new king ascends to the throne, what is normal in the culture at that time is that the king would typically eliminate any threats to his power. That's what Saul's doing. Saul's hatred for David is because he hates the plan of God to bring David to the throne. He sees his own legacy being dismantled, and he cannot handle the thought of losing prominence. He can't take it. 
And be very careful, I want to say this to you, be very careful in your own life that you don't think, what a sorry individual, without seeing yourself in some way at times in Saul's heart. Okay, we are all capable of watching other people be deeply blessed and in our heart resenting it. What, da- what, what Jonathan says to David is, David, show kindness to my family. Don't take away your covenant promise to me and my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. What is Jonathan saying? Jonathan is saying, David, it is clear that the plan of God to love and protect your life is firm. It is committed. And what, what, what Jonathan says to David is, look, we're going to sound out my father, but I want, I want you to respond to my need first. And he, he calls him into this beautiful relationship, and he says, David, I want you to promise me that my family, under your leadership and under your rule, is secure, even when the Lord has cut off all of your enemies from the face of the earth. And it's interesting when Jonathan says that, because one of the enemies of David, or the arch enemy of David, is who? The king. His dad. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, picture that emerges. And it's one that has interesting prophetic overtones, doesn't it? When Jonathan talks about God defeating the enemies of David, he talks about all your enemies from the face of the whole earth. And if you're familiar with the, uh, uh, with the idea of the Davidic covenant that James is going to preach on in a few weeks, you know that that is a covenant that has eternal consequence and ramification. And Jonathan is speaking here better than he knows as the Spirit of God moves in the inspired writer. He's talking about promises that extend way into the future. And so after this, um, after this kind of covenant relationship is established, then you find, <clears throat> verse 16, Jonathan responding. He made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as himself, this deep and strong relationship. So what is Jonathan saying? Jonathan's saying, David, I want you to be aware that there is on my part no hatred against you, even if it turns out to be true that my father despises you and wants you dead. That's not where I am. I am committed to the purposes of God. I'm not resisting what I know to be true in your life before God, and I am here to do everything I can to protect and sustain you. And to be sure that my father's ill intentions against you are not carried out. So what happens, what happens next is uh, that Jonathan and David come up with a plan to sound out their father. And it's, it's, it's listed as you begin reading in verse 18. David... Jonathan says to David, tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait at the stone Etzel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come because as surely as the Lord lives, you're safe. Saul's not going to kill you. There is no danger. Verse 22. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are behind you. 
then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And David's comprehension in my mind as I read that, his comprehension of the sovereignty of God in all things is profound and overwhelming. It's not that Saul is sending you away, David. It's that in the plan of God, he's working all of these things together, ultimately for good. Let's trust him. It's the heart of Jonathan as you read through this text. So they come up with a plan. The plan is that David won't go to the dinner, and Jonathan will be there, and Saul will be there. And it's very, it's very interesting that when you, when you read in verse 24 the unfolding of the plan, okay, David's not going to be there for two days. The assumption is if Saul has ill intentions towards David, by the second day, his rage at David not coming to the family celebration is going to be so strong. Okay, I fear this with my own mom, okay, in a, in a much less severe way, okay. I've never said to my mom I'm not going to be there for Thanksgiving because I don't know what that would mean to her, okay. Or actually, I kind of do know what that would mean. So, so you understand that kind of tension, and, and it, it would be a declaration of disloyalty. And so when Saul doesn't see David there day one, he, 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 he kind of says to himself, um, well, he says nothing that day because he kind of thinks, well, maybe David's ceremonially, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, so he can't come to this feast uh, kind of religious celebration. And so Saul's like, okay, it's kind of odd. Note to self. One of the things I want you to notice real quick, and just as I think of this, is when, when you come to the meal in verse 24, the new mean feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place. What's the text say? By the wall. What would that mean? It means that Saul is paranoid. Saul is sitting, and sometimes I'll do this with my family. I like to sit at the wall and kind of see the entrance to the place because I want to be in the place where I can protect my family. I want to be aware in this world that I live in of what's going on around me. Okay? Saul is, is... being overcome with fear. His custom is to sit by the wall so he can best protect himself as the king. I think it's an interesting side note in the text. He saw that David's place was empty, verse 26. He said nothing that day. Verse 27, but the next day, and that but kind of indicates that there's a, a heightening of tension in the story. The next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't, and here's what I want you to notice. From now on, David is no longer David to Saul. He is the son of Jesse. Okay? These are subtle tones you find in the text where Saul is starting to want to diminish David's relevance. He's the son of a no-name. But he'll get stronger than that. Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today, Jonathan? And Jonathan apparently hasn't seen this anger of his father. Or Jonathan is hoping that these fits of rage, these, this coming and going of depression and, and raging anger, he, he's somehow hoping that it'll settle down and it'll be okay. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away to see my brothers. This is why he's not come to the table. But there's something in the tone of Jonathan's voice that belies that this is not a true statement. 
or it is just simply the pure, strong suspicion of Saul, who knows that David and Jonathan have a deep, loyal love for one another and a respect, a mutual commitment to each other's success and survival for the glory of God. Verse 30 says this. It says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him in a very euthanized way in the translation, you son of a perverse woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, not David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And Jonathan's like, David was right. David read what was going on and understood that the intention of King Saul was deep and committed. He wanted nothing more than the pure destruction of David. So he speaks to his son in a profane way. Folks, this is what will happen. Saul did not sit back thinking, if David and Jonathan ever begin to emerge as a, as a, a duo against the kingdom, then this is how I'll respond. This, this is just Saul's, it's what's inside of him that's coming out of him. And what flows out of Saul's heart, deeply resentful, deeply anger, bitter towards everybody around him, not wanting to accept the will and plan of God, is as ugly as it can get. So he unleashes an attack on his heir apparent son. He uses three things to try to destroy the intention of Jonathan and to sever the bond of David and Jonathan. Here's what he does. He unleashes shame. Cause him scandalous. I know what you're up to, you son of a perverse woman. Secondly, he uses punishment, feelings of guilt. You're embarrassing your mom. Thirdly, he seduces him with greed. You see, here's the problem that Saul has. Saul thinks that everybody around him is just like him. And he has this, these glasses that he wears of, of greed and selfishness and lust for power that cover how he views everyone. So he imposes how he sees himself on everyone around him and thinks that David is just like him. And he could not be more wrong. That's why David can say to Jonathan, what have I done that would cause your dad to think that I am a usurper, that I have any intention to take his throne? And the answer is a profound silence. The response of Saul is not planned. It is the impulse of his heart. And we'll come back to that in one second. In the aftermath, John has clarity. Because what happens in verse 33 or 32 is Jonathan speaks up. He says, why should David be put to death? What has he done? Give me one cause for his execution. Give me one justification for the bitterness that you have towards him. Saul doesn't offer rebuttal. He offers a spear. And so deeply is he affected by the bitterness and resentment and anger of his heart that he, in the moment, tries to kill the heir apparent to the throne. And folks, here's what I say to you. Let anger be a warning. Let your heart be guarded and careful about unrestrained emotion. Because what Saul does is not planned. It's the outflow of nurturing wrong attitudes 
And when you nurture them, they one day will explode out of your heart. And here's what people say. Listen to this on TV. I hear people say this about people all the time. Can't believe so-and-so did that. That's just not them. That is a lie. Because what, it, what comes out of you, as Paul Tripp has taught us, is what's in you. Life shakes the bottle of your life, and when water pops out, it because water is what's inside. And when that kind of anger and that kind of resentment pops out of your heart in circumstance, it's not changing you, it's revealing you. And so the, the Word of God would say to you, keep your heart with all diligence. Life springs from it. It spontaneously emerges in circumstances. And what you find in David is that what springs spontaneously from David in this season of his life is beautiful. He doesn't try to call, kill Saul because Saul tried to kill me. He's not in the tit-for-tat mode. He wants the glory of God more than anything else. And fascinatingly, Jonathan comes alongside of him and says, that's my heart too. And there's a joy and happiness that David and Jonathan have a, 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 a trust and contentment in God that Saul is completely void of because he has given himself to selfishness and lust for power. He can't take it that other people are getting ahead. And he thinks he can seduce his son with the promise of all that comes with the kingdom. And Jonathan is, is impervious to it. Why? Because he is full up with God. And there is no room in Jonathan's heart for the treasures of this life. And so he is unaffected by the call. The aftermath, John has clarity. He goes out to David, fulfills the plan they'd already read to you, and lets him know that, yes, you're right, David. And they have their final farewell, which is probably one of the most uh, powerful uh, portions of Scripture that you can read. Verse 41. After the boy had gone, so they go through the process, the arrows shoot, and, and Jonathan says, the arrows are beyond you, which means, David, it's time for you to go. But before, before David goes, he, he can't, he's not simply self-interested. He's got a relationship. He's got a vital relationship with Jonathan, and, and he, he's got to go talk to him. And so they meet and they talk and it says, after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and he bowed down before Jonathan three times. The heir apparent bows with his face to the ground. Then they kissed and that would be the, this customary expression of deep affection, appreciation and love. One of my favorite places to go to see that depth of love. And I... I it's always kind of awkward because it's tearful, but it's beautiful. If you go to the International Terminal at Newark Airport, I've gone through there five times traveling overseas for missions work. When I'm there, I sit and watch, hopefully in an appropriate way, watching people say goodbye. And especially in cases where it's an older person and you kind of, read the story as you watch and you see this expression of deep affection, this kiss on the cheeks that says, I love you, I'm loyal to you, I'm committed to you. And that's what's happening here. David and Jonathan have nothing of perversity in their relationship. Sadly, we live in an age where liberal commentators want to say that this is justification for the type of relationship that God's word clearly forbids. That's sad and at one level disgusting. 
that a story of loyal love and devotion to each other would be twisted into something to justify behavior that God's word clearly on the broader uh, tone is against. And so this unfolds and they bow before each other, faces to the ground. They kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. My question to you is why? Why is David so overcome? Here's the answer from the text. Nine times Saul has tried to kill David. And in the last time, God uses the friendship of Jonathan to protect David's life. And what David knows is this. I owe my life to the loyalty of this insider who has forsaken everything, everything for my benefit. And folks, that's the kind of friend that you and I need. And that's the kind of friend that people around you desperately need. Someone who goes into covenant with a hesed, with a, a, an unfailing love that knows that my commitment to these individuals is personally, costly, maybe everything. And while friendship is not the main thrust of this text, the main thrust of this text is that God is preserving the life of his chosen one in spite of the circumstances that are present. In context, he does it through the life of a friend. And so this text, as Doug told us a few weeks ago, kind of zooms in on the friendship. Not that we should preach a sermon simply on friendship from this text, but that we would look at the text and see how God uses relationships to bring preservation and strength into the life of his people. Okay? So that I'm not saying that the sovereignty of God is not the main theme. It is. It's that God, in this case, is sovereign through the life of Jonathan in friendship with David. He is preserving and strengthening and clarifying his will for this man. And to me, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. So in application, uh, let me read 42 and, and 43, because if I don't read these, it's kind of like forgetting to tell you and it give you the tickets. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then Jonathan left and David went back to town. Now, these are, I believe, the applications. And I'll just share these with you real quick. Number one, Saul, a man overcome by anger and bitterness and resentment. The truth is this. Saul is a man who is at war with the plan of God. He knows what God wants, and he is dead set against it. And the result in his life is that it brings destruction and devastating results. One writer said this, he said, your main problem in life is not with the people around you, which is what we all want to say. You know, my marriage would be good if, or if my parents were, then, or in my workplace, it's people like this that are the problem. And, and here's what you need to realize, those circumstances that you face that expose your heart and sometimes ugly desires and patterns are the circumstance that God uses to let you see who you really are. Does that make sense? 
that circumstance that comes up in your life that you respond to out of who you are tells you who you are. David's pro- or Saul's problem is not David. Saul's problem is not Jonathan. Saul's problem is God's plan. At the root of most of our anger is a discontentment with the sovereignty of God and what he's doing in our life. And the reason I overreact is because I'm overly selfish. And I want what I want, and the people in my way are my problem. I love when people say, oh, I just don't like politics. Well, then you just don't like people. Because there is never a political problem at work or at school that doesn't involve people. And James says it this way. He says, where do wars and fightings come from among you? And he insightfully says, don't they come from your own desires? You desire, you lust, you want, but you can't have, so you war and you kill. Here's what I'm convinced of in this text. Saul that day at the feast had no intention of killing his son. But when his son's statement, David has done you no wrong, speaks the truth of God, Saul can't handle it because he is in a war against God. And here's what we do. We blame our mate or we blame our children or we blame our neighbors or we blame our coworkers. We play, blame fellow students uh, at school or we blame politics, whatever. When our real issue is a deep discontentment in heart with what God is doing at this time in our lives. And so just about anything can set you off. Because you're not walking like David and Jonathan. I trust God. Folks, listen. David had a spear thrown at him three times. He does not respond in anger. He says, I'm trusting God. And I love that. Jonathan, same thing. I want the plan of God to be fulfilled. Saul wants what he wants so badly. A legacy, a dynasty, power, wealth. He wants that so badly that he's willing to kill his own son to get it, which is so weird. Because he just said to him, if the son of David is alive, you'll never get this stuff. And Jonathan's response is, I don't want that stuff. I want to be happy doing God's will. I want to be a man of God. I want to be committed to embracing his plan in my life. So those ploys of Saul, shame and, and greed, have no impact. My daughter, in her first year of college, called me after hearing a sermon. And the sermon, kind of in summary, was this. It was, it's better to not have what you want and be happy than it is to have what you want while being unhappy. That will change your life because it's rooted in biblical principle. It's better to not have what you want and be happy than to have what you want by your means and be unhappy. Saul has what he wants. He's the king. But he is disintegrating emotionally. Because Valley gets it. Not trusting God, but demand and law and judgment and hatred. In the end, Saul destroys what he's trying to protect. And I think that is fundamentally broken and sad. Jonathan is a godly friend. And as you look at Jonathan, you can learn something quite in contrast to Saul. He is the means that God uses to protect. Jonathan knows God's will and yields to God plan, God's plan. Saul know, knows God's will and fights God's plan. One writer said it this way. He said, we have arms too short to box with God. 
have a, have a couple of great nephews. I don't anticipate having this with granddaughters, but I have a couple of great nephews. And they're getting in that age where they want to run up against you and they want to mess with you, right? And uh, it's kind of funny. When they come to tackle, to punch, to hit, whatever, you just put your hand on their head. They can't reach you. Okay? And that's how I see Saul. He's throwing a tantrum at God. He's got arms too short to box with God. And instead of surrendering, he, 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 he lusts and desires and kills and destroys everybody around him trying to be happy while forsaking it. Jonathan loves the will of God and yields to God's plan. David is a strong warrior who is struggling deeply. And that's the way the text presents him. He's like, David, Jonathan, I'm bewildered. I don't know what to do. I'm perplexed. And Jonathan comes alongside and offers a plan to assist and help someone who will benefit from John's losses. Do you see that? He's helping someone who will benefit at his expense. And he's fine with it. He's good with it. May God help us. As I look at Jonathan's life, here's what I see. I see a man who is God-centered. In the speech that he gives to David, 13 verses long, he mentions the name of Jehovah nine times. Jonathan, in his relationship with David, is God-centered. And he talks about everything being done in the eyes of God, in the sight of God, while Saul lives in the dark shadows of shame. Jonathan lives in the light of the glory of God, and I think it is incredible and beautiful. He is God-centered in his approach, which means at the end that he is humble and selfless. He's willing to walk away. He's willing to freely give over to David what God has given to David. He's willing to freely, freely relinquish it. And at the end of the day, I ask myself, in this story, who's happy? Who's happy? Who has what they were looking for? Jonathan and David do. Not Saul. Not Saul. Jonathan is submitting to the plan of God, a great personal loss. He will not be king. That's the plan of God. Jonathan says, if that's the plan of God, I'm good with it. I heard one guy say this at a, at a, at a missionary conference in college. He said, if God asks you to be a servant, don't stoop to be a king. If God asks you to be something less than what you want, don't stoop out of lust for power to be a king. That is transforming as well. And I think I see that in, uh, in David's life and in Jonathan's life. You know, as I look at the story of Jonathan and David, here's what I see. I see that vital relationships are critical to the strength of your life. This is a picture of the church in early form. This is two believers who love God, who are vitally and deeply knit together in their hearts, who are better together than they are when they're alone. You know why David flees from, from Ramoth and goes back to Gibeah where Saul is headquartered at the risk of his life? You know why he does that? Because he needs time with Jonathan. He needs to talk to the trusted friend who loves God and will tell him the truth. May God give us a heart for selfless, vital relationships in the body of Christ, where we realize that I was never meant to be alone. You can study through Scripture. Moses, Moses had his Aaron. Esther had Mordecai. Paul had Timothy. And I could go on and on. God always raised up for his people others who would buttress and support them so that they would be everything that God wanted them to be in a way that would never induce pride but humility because it's never done alone. 
May God do that in our community through the chapel at Warren Valley. May we reject the individualistic view of life as Christians that says, it's Jesus and me. Not so. It's Jesus and you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the design and plan of God. May God give us a passion and a desire to engage in relationships that are transformational for us and to sustain us in the real troubles of life. And then David is the last picture, real quick. David, to me, is a picture of Christ. He is a king who will, whose reign will cover the earth. That is the picture of Jesus, who after his resurrection says this, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. David is a foretaste of that. David is a king who, Jonathan says, God's going to eliminate all your enemies from the face of the earth, David. He's going to establish your kingdom. That will be the hand and work of God, not because David deserves it, as we will see, but because it is the plan of God and the will of God to work through broken, inadequate, sinful people to do things that can only be attributed to the power and glory of God at work. So that transformation, that change you long to see in your life that you can't get to, remember there is someone who can change you. His name is Jesus Christ. When David is, in this text, attacked, he doesn't utter a word in self-defense. And when I hear that, I think of my Savior, who, when he was reviled, did not rebuff, who never went tit for tat, but freely gave his life for the benefit of you and I. On his good days, David points to the king that we long for, to a king who rules in righteousness, who loves God's will and purpose. And like his Savior says, not my will, but thine be done. May God, uh, for his glory, uh, transform our lives through the text that we studied this morning. May we look at Jonathan and say, God, make me a friend like that. May we look at Saul and say, God, give me a healthy fear of anger, resentment, and bitterness. Don't let it destroy me. And, and folks, listen, the only way you can do it is you've got to go to God and say, God, I am wrestling with resentment, bitterness, anger towards everybody around me. And I realize that my real problem is I don't like where you've placed me. I don't like your will. I don't like your plan. I don't like your purpose in my life today. And that is the height of my sin. And let God show you that today. Let him break your heart and bring you to a place where you can say, God, forgive me. I have been resentful and bitter and angry. When I read Saul's life, I see myself. Folks, here's the truth. You can't control the effect of anger, bitterness, and resentment. You can't. What we always think is, I got this. I got this under control. Yes, I'm a little angry. Yes, I'm a little bitter. Yes, I'm a little resentful, a little warring, but I got it. You need to study Saul's life and realize that eventually it will flare up in ways that will surprise you. And the person that causes you to flare up was the one that you're going to want to blame. What you really need to do is look in the mirror and say, God, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm the young person. It's my sin. Forgive me. Help me to live in peace for the glory of God. If you're here this morning you've never trusted Christ, I want you to know this. Uh, Jesus Christ is a glorious Savior. And he, like Jonathan, suffered an infliction of great loss. Not material, not temporary, but his life. 
so that he could bring you into his hesed, his loyal, unfailing love in a relationship with him by acknowledging your sin, your anger, your bitterness, whatever it is, and saying, God, through the blood of Christ, cleanse me and save me and keep me and help me to love and know and worship the King of Kings. May you come before him today in that way as we sing our closing song this morning. Father, as we uh, conclude our service, we thank you that your word is like a two-edged sword pierces even the, the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of our, of, our, of our thoughts and our intentions. And God, I love this text because it exposes my heart. And it shows me where I can be resentful and uh, angry and unaccepting of your plan. God, humble me through good friends. Humble me by your spirit. Humble me through the work of Christ who shed his blood so that I could be different and changed. If there's someone here this morning, Lord, who does not know Jesus, I pray that today might be the day that they come and say, Lord, today I want to commit my life to you. I want to trust you. I want to know you. I want to turn from my sin and be changed and born from above by the power of your spirit. Oh, God, we pray that that will happen in people's hearts and that we will be freed to live a happy life for your glory. Not fighting, but submitting and surrendering to you. I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.